The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Saturday, March 18th, 2023. That's it, Rios. Let's go to work. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 37th Digest of the second volume covering Monday, March 13th through Friday, March 17th, 2023. Marvel Saga Monday, Part 19, taking a look at Issue 19 of the official history of the Marvel Universe. Peter Sanderson is your writer and researcher. Your front cover by Keith Pollard and John Betty has the caption of the debut of Hawkeye and the New Avengers, and it features Cap's kooky quartet of Quicksilver, Captain America, Hawkeye in the lead, and Scarlet Witch. This fe- For the first time, it feels like this cover is not necessarily a direct uh, homage to another cover, but it certainly feels like Avengers number four, or perhaps a riff on the cover to Avengers 17 by Kirby and Giacoa, but it's not like a direct lift, uh, where most of the other covers have been somewhat of a recreation. Uh, Some more captions, plus Thor versus Loki in The Trial of the Gods, that's featured on the back cover, plus Spider-Man defeated by the Green Goblin, also on the back cover, plus Doctor Strange, the Hulk, Daredevil, and much more. And that back cover is also by Keith Pollard, this time with inks by Klaus Janssen. Two images here. You got Green Goblin holding a defeated Spider-Man as the crime master and a crowd of gangsters looks on. And this is a combination of both the cliffhanger to Amazing Spider-Man 26 and the splash page to Amazing Spider-Man 27. And then the second second image is Thor and Loki in front of Odin recreating the Kirby Coletta cover to Journey into Mystery 116. All the material in this issue is pulled from Amazing Spider-Man 26 through 28, Avengers 16, Daredevil 7, Fantastic 439, Journey into Mystery 115 and 116, Strange Tales 135 and 136, and Tales to Astonish 67 through 68, uh, bringing us no later than around June of 1965 in terms of Marvel publishing. So book 19 is entitled The Older Order Changeth, and that's going to be a title that will make sense throughout the whole book. We start on, let's see, pages 1 through 6, which is a continuation from last issue. Loki has tricked Odin into thinking Thor has brought Jane Foster to Asgard, when it really was Loki. So Odin proclaims that the two must go through the trial of the gods to find out who is telling the truth. And the saga describes the trial as an ancient Asgardian ritual by which two individuals are subjected to extraordinary perils in order to determine which of them is speaking the truth. Thor begs Odin to give him two days to take Jane Foster back to Earth and to have a a rematch with the newly created Absorbing Man. And during that encounter, uh, I'm meeting, uh, for the first time, uh, a reporter named Harris Hobbs. 
I don't know how often that character is featured in Thor comics or if he's anywhere in current comics, but there's a character, uh, you know, that I haven't heard of before, but, you know, it's not like I've read a lot of those early Marvel comics. So in his match with Absorbing Man, Creel can absorb the strength of Mjolnir when he is struck, and then he lays on the ground to absorb the strength of the Earth itself, and he turns into this composite man of rock and wood and steel, and so while he is so full to the brim with all of that absorption, Thor then uses his hammer to transmute elements to push Creel further into, you know, absorbing, trying to absorb more power, and it causes basically a small nuclear explosion, taking Creel out of the picture for now. And my first thought was, that's exactly how they got rid of the Absorbing Man in Ang Lee's Hulk. That's exactly what happens. He has, you know, this incredible power to absorb, He and the Hulk throws all of his power into the absorbing man. He becomes this like glob of energy. And then the uh, Thunderbolt Ross, you know, uh, allows them, uh, allows his servicemen to hit them with some kind of, you know, explosion, nuclear device or whatever. So, so this whole notion of being so full of power and then not able to absorb more power unless he just, you know, totally explodes, explodes, it's right there. It's right there in these pages. So uh, that was uh, curious as, as as I was reading it, why people were so upset with what happened at the end of uh, the Ang Lee Hulk movie. By the way, the splash page to this comic features new art by Al Milgram based on Journey into Mystery 115, page 5 by Kirby and Ray. Oddly enough, it is the only new art in this entire issue Whereas for a good run there, we were getting not only the splash page, but a whole bunch of interior new art as well. Pages six through eight, we have Doctor Strange still on the run from Baron Mordo, still searching for clues about eternity. Dormammu tells Mordo that knowledge of eternity isn't intended for mages such as himself or such as Mordo or Doctor Strange, but it could spell doom for all if Strange is to find that knowledge. And I'm assuming we're going to wrap up this little Doctor Strange story, perhaps in next issue. Pages 8 through 9, Iron Man, Giant Man, and the Wasp take some downtime after their battle with Zemo to recognize that perhaps they need even more of a break from being Avengers. Wasp even mentions that Thor can't be at the meeting because he's on a trial of the gods, you know, Marvel doing their interconnectivity thing. This is the beginning the beginning of the first shakeup for the Avengers roster, and right away, here comes Hawkeye offering his services, saying that all of his previous encounters with Iron Man were all misunderstandings, that he wants to be a hero. And Iron Man when he sees uh, an arrow, a smoke arrow, he immediately thinks, oh, if it's who I think it is, we'll have a fight on our hands. And I thought, well, there you go, Hawkeye fans. That's a major compliment, right? That he can hold his own even against three members of the Avengers with just his bow and arrow. Um, the entire scene 
reminds me a little bit of the end of the Satellite Era Justice League and the beginning of Justice League Detroit, where the team is going to disband and you know some people are against the idea and Aquaman turns to his teammates and says, look, if you can fully devote yourself to the team, we can stay together. But if not, there is no team. And then, of course, some do and some don't. So this little conversation here and other things that will happen later in the book reminded me of that moment. Pages 10 through 12, when last we left Bruce Banner, he was kidnapped uh, to the Mongolian wilderness. He is found in this issue by Major Glenn Talbot and they escape. But then they, uh, they run across like a small road on a cliff. Of course, they fall to their death, but the Hulk emerges he saves Talbot, and Hulk finally decides it's time to go home. And then the saga narrates and says, somehow the Hulk has developed a homing instinct that leads him back to the New Mexico desert where he was created. I love that idea. Totally love that idea. I, I think I vaguely recall that from a story I read, I believe, but it certainly makes sense, right? I don't know if this is something they've ever continued with, if it shows up in any current comics, but on a scientific scale, it makes sense, right? If the gamma bomb went off in a certain location and it has a certain radiation whatever, that could be a way to tie the Hulk to that that spot. Um, I don't even know if, was that the only gamma bomb that's ever gone off to that degree in the Marvel Universe? I, I'm, I doubt it, right? I'm sure there's there have been others. But I like that notion a lot, and um, it gives something else for the Hulk, you know? So, yeah, I kind of dug that. Page 13, we touch briefly on the Fantastic Four, who are still powerless as Reed tries to figure out what to do. Pages seven, uh, 13 through 17... Uh, this is a battle for control over New York criminal gangs between the new Crime Master and Green Goblin. Crime Master apparently knows the true identity of Goblin, um, but uniting the gangs was Goblin's idea, putting the two of them, you know, at a confrontation. So to take control out from under the Crime Master, Goblin decides to defeat Spider-Man and show all of the other gangs that uh, Goblin was the one to do it. So the gangs decide to follow him, and this whole sequence has a ton of Ditko panels that feel familiar or, you know, might, might have been reproduced a lot. It just feels very iconic. Eventually, the Crime Master is killed by the police. We will get other Crime Masters down the road, and we get the classic sequence of... Uh, Green Goblin with his face in the shadows. He's unmasked and holding his mask high in the air, vowing to return in the future. And then the saga states here, basically spoiling for us, that the uniting of the gangs will happen in the future, but under Wilson Fisk, who will be known as the Kingpin of Crime. Pages 17 and 18, we get back to the formation of a new Avengers since uh, they are so much in the public, news spreads to even Scarlet Witch and Quick Quicksilver that the Avengers are looking for new recruits. 
So the twins see this as their chance to redeem themselves from being members of the Brotherhood of the uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Hawkeye is introduced to the public in a press conference. He's been fully tested by the Avengers and fully investigated and approved by the Federal Security Agency. Now remember, this is what decades before Civil War, right? So interesting to hear that they are connected with. I'm assuming a governmental agency like that. Page 19, we head back to Spider-Man as he battles the Molten Man, not yet learning that Mark Raxton is the stepbrother of one-time girlfriend Liz Allen. Also in the same issue, Amazing Spider-Man 28, Peter Parker graduates from Midtown High School. So he was only in high school for, you know, 28 issues, and yet the idea of Spider-Man as a teen or even as a high schooler seemed to feel very strong in my mind. I mean, 28 issues, that's only over two years of Spider-Man stories. Now, you know, he is headed for college at Empire State, but if you would have asked me, you know, how many issues of Amazing Spider-Man is Peter Parker shown to be a high schooler in those early adventures, I would have said at least 40, you know, I know what by issue 50, isn't that when he battles Kingpin, I think, but I, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was a much longer time. So kind of cool, uh, fun to learn. It shows that Marvel really does do, you know, they, they're sort of evolving their characters quickly in these early days. Pages 20 through 24, finally, the trial of the gods begins between Thor and Loki. They are sent to Skornheim, which is a land of dark mystery, without weapons, without their powers. The only thing they have uh, is their strength. And the first one to return to Asgard will be judged the victor. You know, I, I think it's an, it's an odd way for Odin to try to determine who is telling the truth. But even though this is something that he's putting out here for his sons, I think in the back of, the, of his mind, he knows what's going on. He knows that Loki is already causing trouble. Uh, Loki, even while this is going on, has sent the Enchantress and Executioner after Jane Foster on Earth, since Thor isn't there to protect her. So Odin sends Balder the Brave to Earth to rescue her. And sure enough, Loki is cheating. When they get sent away, he does have weapons with him. He has brought with him the Norn Stones, and he uses them to uh, make his way through this strange land. And it made me think, you know, where do the Norn Stones sit on the power scale between things like Mandarin's Rings or the Infinity Gems, of course, because they look like they can do a lot. Pages 24 through 26, we have Captain America finally returning to the Avengers after that battle with Zemo, only to learn that the only people that at this time he really considers as friends are disbanding the Avengers. They're leaving, right? They're taking a leave of absence, and they are leaving Captain America with three strangers, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, and Quicksilver. So here's an, an assumption that I had about this era of Captain America's kooky quartet that I can now correct for myself. I assumed from the way people talked about 
this issue, Avengers 16, uh, uh, you know, certainly the cover. I assumed that it was Captain America that rounded up these members, but no, he inherits leadership because he is the only senior member left on the team. That's a much different dynamic than what I thought or what other people, you know, made it out to be. I guess what I assumed that they made this whole, you know, uh, part of Avengers history out to be. I couldn't tell you where I read in comics form, you know, probably during some kind of like Avengers history thing, but I just always assume it was Captain America that made these decisions, and nope, it's not that way at all. Pages 27 through 28, we have all these little vignettes, all taken from Journey into Mystery 116, and wow, this one comic really shows you the tapestry of the Marvel Universe. It is completely on display in just this one issue. So while you have the trial going on in the background, you have Enchantress and Executioner running around New York with Jane Foster. You do see the original Avengers having a meeting, perhaps for the last time. The Fantastic Four have been out of commission for a month ever since they They've become powerless. And then you have the Frightful Four deciding that they're going to pay a visit to the Baxter building, which is more or less deserted, and then only to be scared off because they see a fireball coming down from the sky. They think it's the Human Torch, but no, it's Balder the Brave coming to Earth, tasked by Odin to rescue Jane Foster. Um, Human Torch, by the way, has also graduated from high school by this point. So... When you look at the actual issue beyond just what is shown in the saga, all of these things are kind of conspiring and happening. Um, and then you have yet another thing happening where a member of Rick Jones's teen brigade is trying to contact all of these people. And, and then he acts kind of like your point man through... Uh, this tour around New York City, right? Because all of these heroes are in Manhattan. And then you even see Daredevil swinging by and Daredevil is thinking, oh, you know, I'm searching for the Submariner. So when you have one writer for all of these stories, is it any wonder that you can get away with such a tightly woven series of events happening in just one issue and in many ways acting like a promotion for your entire line? Um, so all of those titles that I read off in the opening of each segment for Marvel Saga, you know, all the material that is being pulled from certain issues. In this issue, you got Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, Daredevil, uh, Journey into Mystery, Fantastic Four, Tales to Astonish, Strange Tales, although that's under Ditko's plot. Think of the ones we didn't cover in this issue. X-Men, Tales of Suspense, Sergeant Fury. It is the Marvel Saga as told by Stan Lee. I mean, it's the Stan Lee saga, right? And this is not a new thought. We know this, that Stan Lee was the scripter for all of these books, even if he wasn't necessarily the one coming up with all the ideas. Um, it's a good snapshot of, of you know, the, the kind of uh, creative interconnectivity, as I mentioned before, that can go on. And it's pretty great. It's, it's, it's a great little moment for the Marvel Universe, for the Marvel history, and really for the saga. Like this issue, and they talk about it a little bit in the 
inside cover, how this issue out of all the issues is the one that is most benefited by uh, the Marvel Saga format. Which leads us back to page 28, Daredevil battling Submariner of all people from Daredevil 7. This is where he is now sporting his new red costume. It doesn't quite get much fanfare here. Uh, and I think this matchup is quite a mismatchup. But um, I did learn that the whole reason the two are at odds is because Namor comes to Murdoch's law office to sue the human race for depriving Atlanteans of their birthright. And then it goes on from there. Pages 29 through 31, we finally get the public announcement of the new Avengers team. There's a lot here that's fun to read, especially through the lens of all of Marvel's history since, you know, the early 2000s, because you have, and the, and the cinematic universe, because you have Iron Man saying things like, the ranks of the Avengers will always need replenishing, the old must ever give way to the new, but also saying, I'll never forget the words Avengers assemble. I'll never forget what they stood for. It's not easy to stop being an Avenger. And then you also have like this friendship, especially in these early days, between people like Captain America and Iron Man and, and the others. You know, they're really broken up over this. People are crying. Tony says that he has to go lose himself into his work for a while. And I just keep thinking, wow, what a turn of events if you, you know, if you get all the way through to Civil War uh, and afterwards, right, there was a long period of time where Captain America and Iron Man were not buddies. And it's just really interesting to hear read about these early days. Iron Man says to Captain America that he should try to go find Hulk. A nice reminder that Hulk was an original Avengers member. And we also have Hawkeye questioning why Captain America should be leader if he has no noticeable superpowers. And I just thought, uh, hello? You don't your arrows are not superpowers, right? Your arrows, your arrows are no different than Captain America's shield. So I'm not exactly sure why he should, of all characters should think that. And then the saga mentions that Hawkeye will lead the Avengers West Coast Division. A little bit of promotion there. And then this, uh, Hawkeye also says, Without Thor, Giant, Giant Man, and Iron Man, will this new team have enough strength? Which I guess we'll see in, you know, issues coming up. Which brings us finally to page 32 with Thor trying to catch up to Loki during their trial. And we end there with uh, that cliffhanger. You know, as I said before, <laughs> that was a, a busy Marvel saga in terms of note-taking. Um, you know, even though it was pretty cool to see how connected these stories were, I'm not sure I would want that all the time. I mean, it's not even that they were connected issue to issue. What the saga is saying here is that a lot of these stories were connected within the pages, right? The pages themselves. Um, and that's a lot of fun. But as I said, it was a lot of note taking. So I hope uh, they don't continue this way. Next time around, we'll get to Marvel Saga number 20. Timeline Trivia Tuesday for March 2023, Part 1, taking a look at some comic history, 
10 years ago, 20 years ago, and 30 years ago, as well as giving you some trivia based on first issues or creators or final issues, etc. So we start 10 years ago, March of 2013, over at Marvel, their big event was the Age of Ultron. So the first issue released 10 years ago, that would last 10 issues, it had a bunch of tie-ins written by Brian Michael Bendis, the artwork for the first chunk of issues and perhaps the last issue was by Brian Hitch and Paul Neary, but you also had Brandon Peterson. I honestly can't tell you much about it. Uh, Ultron takes over. There's something to do with alternate Earths. I remember a scene with Invisible Woman that was kind of important. And then by the end, Neil Gaiman's Angela character from the Spawn universe would be introduced into the Marvel universe. There was a spin-off series after this called Avengers AI, and you can say more or less the uh, Age of Ultron Avengers movie is somewhat inspired or based on um, this event, although not really. From Marvel's Marvel Now initiative, we got Wolverine number one by Paul Cornell, Alan Davis, Mark Farmer. That would last 13 issues, and I can remember really liking this run at the time. DC was doing, obviously, their New 52, and they would cancel some titles. They would introduce some new titles. So we got the first issue of Constantine, spinning out of Justice League Dark. This was by Ray Fox, Jeff Lemire, art by Renato Guedes, and this would last uh, 23 issues. And then over uh, with Action Comics, Action Comics 18, that would be the last issue for Grant Morrison's run on that title ever since the New 52 began. And then from Image Comics 10 years ago, March of 2013, we have the very first issue of East of West by Jonathan Hickman, Nick Dragata. This would run 45 issues uh, a science a science fiction western set in a dystopian version of the United States. And it explores an alternate timeline where the Civil War never ended until a comet lands in the middle of the country in the early 1900s. And then at the crash site, a truce is finally made to end the war, resulting in a signing of a treaty forming the new seven nations of america so your question ha 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 this is going to be hard if you haven't read it your question what were the seven nations of america the united states was carved up into a whole bunch of different territories so what were those seven nations let's go 20 years ago march of 2003 from CrossGen, we had the title Solace, uh, the first issue of that title. That would run eight issues. This was by Barbara Kiesel. George Perez was on most of the issues. Uh, Rick Magyar was your inker. I wasn't a big CrossGen reader, but I definitely was there anytime Perez was there. So I got these issues and also got the CrossGen Chronicles as well. Uh, but ultimately, I, I don't know if I have... I'd have to check my inventory. I, I might have sold them off. I want to say I have the Chronicle still, but I don't remember if I have Solace. From Marvel, we got Marvel Universe The End, number one of six by Jim Starlin and Al Milgram and Company. 
And this was something Marvel was doing where they did these limited series entitled The End. They did one for Incredible Hulk in 2002 by Peter David and Dale Keown. And then they would do other ones such as Wolverine, Punisher, Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Spider-Girl. Chris Claremont did an X-Men one and it actually turned out to be like a trilogy of miniseries. It was to be, um, I don't know, like a a wrap-up of these characters' lives or their journeys, stories, whatever, and they branded it The End. Also 20 years ago, the X-Men 2 movie, X-Men United, was about to be released in theaters in May, so Marvel was giving us a whole bunch of X-Men 2 preludes and movie adaptions. From DC, from Vertigo, we had a one-shot entitled Zatanna, Everyday Magic, by Paul Dini and Rick Mays with a great Brian Boland cover. John Constantine was in this story. Uh, It's really a lot of fun if you've never read it. Uh, Check it out. See if it's on on the DC app. Um, Just a a one-shot, a prestige format one-shot for for Zatanna. And I want to say this is the first time she was back in her tuxedo look but she had thigh highs instead of heels, and I think this was the first time she was designed that way. I could be wrong. Um, Rick Mays, the artwork by Rick Mays is really great. He did an Arsenal miniseries that I liked. He might have done a few issues of Titans or some covers when Devin Grayson was writing it. Um, yeah, he, he Rick Mays didn't do a lot of work, but I used to really like when I saw his his stuff. And then also from DC, uh, 20 years ago, March of 2003, we had two titles coming to an end. Supergirl would end with issue number 80 by Peter David and Ed Bennis. Uh, That began in 1996. This was all about the protoplasm version of Supergirl that then becomes an Earth Angel and all this other stuff. Um, It made me realize that because this series was ending, uh, it, it was ending because they had plans for a new Supergirl eventually, which means we are basically a few months away from the 20th anniversary of Superman Batman by Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness. And in many ways, that was kind of like DC's flagship title that was leading them slowly and slowly into things like Infinite Crisis, and then eventually 52, and everything that led up to Infinite Crisis. So that first storyline in Superman Batman um, had a tease for a new crisis, and everybody was like, oh no, what's going to happen? You know, this is, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of uh, the original crisis. What are they going to do? So this was a really great time to be a DC fan. And then uh, we also got the last issue of Asriel, issue 100. That began in December of 1994, and the artist on that final issue was Sergio Cariello. Uh, At this time, it was entitled Asriel, Agent of the Bat. So your question, who was the writer of not only that last issue, issue 100, but I'm fairly certain, if my research is right, he was the writer for the entire series, and I'll give you a hint it is one of uh, Asriel's co-creators. So there you go. Who wrote that final issue? Who wrote um, all, or if not all, damn near almost all of the issues of Asriel? 
And then 30 years ago, March of 1993, from Image Comics, we have 1963, number one of six, by Alan Moore, Rick Veach, and Dave Gibbons. We also had the first issue and first appearance, I believe, of The Max, which would run 35 issues by Sam Keith, with script on this first issue by William Messner Loeb's. And then I was reminded that there was a short animated run of the Max on MTV a few years after this first issue. Over at DC, Batman 492, we finally hit the 30th anniversary of the very first part of Nightfall. We had some preludes, we had some one-shots and some prologues leading up to it, but this issue is the first chapter of Nightfall by Doug Munch and Norm Brayfogle, with a cover by Kelly Jones. All of the inmates of Arkham Asylum had already been freed in a previous story, and in this issue, Batman goes up against the Mad Hatter, all while knowing Bane is in, is in the background, and eventually he's going to have to fight him, like a big boss. We talked about Milestone celebrating its 30th anniversary. This month would give us the first issue of Blood Syndicate and Icon, Vertigo also celebrating 30 years. We got the first issue of Kid Eternity, the series. And then also for Marvel, Cable, number one, by Fabian Nicieza and Art Taber. This series would run 107 issues plus annuals, etc. Um, and I can remember really liking this series for the first year. In fact, I would always keep coming back to this title, either because of a crossover event or after the Age of Apocalypse, when I was reading every X title, um, you know, it was interesting, right? So Liefeld on New Mutants and X-Force uh, is really the reason why we would get Image. And then um, this title felt like it was trying to recapture the the style of Image and the flavor of Image. But for some reason, I, I kind of dug it. So your question is from this issue. Aaliyah, or or really from the life of Cable, Aaliyah Dayspring was Cable's wife and mother to his son, Tyler, often known as Genesis. As part of Cable's clan, uh, you know, the, the clan chosen of the Iskani in the future, what clan name did Aaliyah adopt as a tribute to certain members of the legendary X-Men? And then in this issue, we see, it's kind of like a flashback, we see that she gets killed, but she had a code name, and it is addressed in this issue. What is that code name? All right, here you go. Pencils down. No cheating. Here are your answers. The Seven Nations of America from East of West. The Seven Nations are the Armistice, the Union, the Confederacy, the Kingdom of New Orleans, the Endless Nation, the Republic of Texas, and the People's Republic of America? That's a hard question. I know. Um, here's your question for 20 years ago. Who was the main writer of the Asriel series, including the final issue and perhaps all the issues, and was also one of the co-creators? That would be Denny O'Neill. And then 30 years ago, uh, Aaliyah Dayspring went by the code name of Jen Scott. J-E-N-S-K-O-T, as in uh, Jean Grey and, and Scott Summers, Jen Scott. Or maybe it's Jean Scott. So there you go. Those are your questions. Those are your answers. We will be back again later this month 
for 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and 60 years ago. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday recommendations for the week of March 15th. Only doing recommendations this time around. Starting off at IDW with Star Trek Defiant number one by Christopher Cantwell and Angel Unzueta. This is a brand new series spinning off of the Star Trek series, the current Star Trek book that I really like. The first expansion of IDW's exciting new Star Trek initiative that started with the 400th issue. I'm going to need to read that issue. Someone is killing the gods, but Benjamin Sisko's prophets-guided dealings of the higher cosmos has led him to forget about the very real casualties on lower ground. The enemy is a man, not a god, and Worf of House Martok has put together his own crew aboard the USS Defiant in hopes of defeating the dangerous messiah behind this genocidal cult. The Dirty Dozen meets Star Trek with characters such as Worf, Spock, Lore, Bolana Torres, and more for $4.99. I will definitely be reading this because I am, as I mentioned, just really enjoying um, this output right now. From Scout Comics, we have Junction Jones and the Corduroy Conspiracy by T.C. Pescatore and Luciana Cruzado. Bioengineered laborer Junction Jones and his scruffy partner Mr. Niblets stumble upon the remains of a rare earth hobo, landing them in the middle of an intergalactic conspiracy. From maniacal carnies to bloodthirsty bounty, bounty hunters, time travel money laundering schemes to planet-sized gambling debts, the part-time private investigator and his alien pal trapped in the body of a junkyard cat will have to survive the worst the multi-dimensional slums of Junction City has to throw at them if they are to unravel the train-hopping mystery and avoid being recycled. A blend between cyberpunk and classic film noir, $4.99. Something about this and the artwork uh, gave me a, a totally unwarranted vibe similar to Transmetropolitan. So I, I wanted to give that a shout out. From Phoenix Studios, we have A La Brava, Latina Superhero Team Volume 1 by Caden Phoenix, uh, Renato Garcia, Ari Navarrete, Aslan Gray, Sandra Romero. In this superhero universe, Latinas of different upbringings fight against female injustices. With an all-Latina artist team, each book tells their origin story and social cause. In the end, the Latina superheroes form Team A La Brava, the first Latina superhero team in comic book history. This is from Phoenix Studios by Caden Phoenix, who is a third-generation Chicana from East L.A. The individual characters are Jalisco, uh, a blade-wielding Mexican folklorico dancer that uses her culture as a weapon, Santa, a, uh, an SJW Latina brawler that takes down the ICE detention centers, Loquita, the Bariqua Cubana teen detective in the supernatural world, 
Ruka, a Chicana vigilante, vigilante dispensing justice. Bandita, the gunslinging Dominican cowgirl in modern-day New York. And they, as I mentioned, join up to become this super team. You can find all of their stories, creator bios, lengthy previews at latinasuperheroes.com. This uh, uh, little volume one uh, graphic novel is $14.99. It will be coming in my next DCBS shipment. And I also picked up Santa from previews because that is my mother's name. From Fantagraphics, we have Avita, The Life and Work of Eva Perone. This is by father and son team of Alberto Breccia and Enrique Breccia and Hector German Osterheld. In a sequel to their experimental biography of Che Guevara in 1969, the creator, creators chronicle the eventful life of Eva Perone. Published in 1970, the text was sanitized before its publication. In 2001, a restored version of this uh, softcover, I believe, um, featuring the original uncensored script, was finally published in Spanish, and it is now translated in English for the first time. This graphic biography of Chiroscuro Pages paints a complex portrait of a pivotal Argentine figure who was at once beloved and reviled by her people. While she has been viewed as an international icon inspiring celebratory works such as Andrew Lloyd Webber's Broadway musical Evita, this biography by her countrymen takes a far more searing and critical approach, chronicling the noble causes she fought for as well as the militarism and oppression of the Peronist regime. $19.99. I once asked my uncle and grandmother um, this was during the 90s because I had choreographed Evita, the musical, at one point in a community theater production. And I asked them if they knew, if they, you know, had heard of Eva Perone. And they both were like, yeah, you know, she was she was very good to her people. She was a saint, you know. Oh, she died so young, blah, 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 blah. M- meanwhile, you know, I, I knew a little bit about her history. So it was interesting to hear their reactions um, even though they're Puerto Rican, you know, certainly the influence was there. Um, but uh, they didn't really have anything negative to say, but it's not like they grew up in Argentina. From Living the Line, we have House on Fire trade paperback by Matt Battaglia. What would you do to save someone you love when the world's fallen apart? Is she sick or is it the world itself? This is a debut graphic novel by writer-artist Matt Battaglia teasing out the difference in a personal political cruise through a fallen world where fear is rational and obedience your only refuge. Uh, Battaglia depicts the near-future landscape with wild two-color brushwork reminiscent of Paul Pope and a minimalist writing style that evokes and questions rather than lectures uh, for 16 bucks. From Marvel, we have the excellent one of five, X spelled X, the, the letter X, Salent, by Peter Milligan and Mike Allred. Your favorite celebrity supervillains are back. Zeitgeist is still on a mission to achieve social media godhood no matter who he has to kill. But the spotlight won't be big enough when the next generation of ecstatics drops in. The final half of Milligan and Allred's mutant celebrity saga for $3.99. And then finally from DC, we have Superman Lost, 1 of 10, 
written by Christopher Priest, art by Carlo Pag- Pagulain and Jason Paz, Superman's Odyssey of Solitude. After Superman is called away on a routine Justice League mission, Lois Lane awakens to find a complete stranger standing in her living room. The Man of Steel, home much sooner than expected, reveals he has in fact been lost in space for 20 years. Nothing and no one seem familiar to him anymore, and the timeless bond between them has been severed. Or has it? Can love conquer all? Superman's 85th anniversary celebration continues with this all-new 10-issue series from the creators of Deathstroke, $4.99. It's Christopher Priest. I will be reading it. I'll be reading it on the Ultra Tier, but I will be reading it. There you go, your recommendations for March 15th. Let's talk some Picard Season 3. The first five episodes have been released. I've watched them. We're coming up on Episode 6 next week. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard enough about Picard, maybe on other podcasts or online or Twitter. Maybe you're watching it. Maybe you're not watching it. I'm watching it, and I love it. I really, really love, I'm so thankful for this season, and it is um, constantly surprising me. Um, I have no idea where it's going, especially in some of those early, well, I I had some ideas, and then by the time you get to episodes four and five, they're like completely thrown out the window. It is a total love letter to the next generation but it also has its fingers in some of the other series as well. They, there are callbacks. Um, we're bringing back moments of TNG that, you know, the high points, things that we really like. And sometimes it's just like small little bits of dialogue that you're like, oh yeah, remember that and remember that episode. Uh, we're getting a few endings of stories that might have just drifted off in TNG. I'm super, super engaged. I'm in it. If you haven't seen it, you might want to skip this episode because I'm about ready to go in deeper. Um, There are a number of things in this uh, story that I thought were going to go one way and then they went some other way, although maybe they're still kind of in that same path. So For instance, the larger conspiracy that seems to be going on. Um, I didn't pick up on it at first, but I was reading some reviews of the first couple episodes and they were saying, oh, this reminds me of the conspiracy episode in, I think, season one. You know, those little creatures that go in your mouth and they stick their tail out the back of your neck and, you know, um, Riker's ready to eat some mealworms. I mean, it's, it's a pretty great episode. And at the end of it, they there was a signal that was released out into space, but then nothing was ever done. Apparently, they were supposed to be the big bad, but they decided to go against that. So a lot of people were thinking that this was going to pick up on that, and maybe it might. It might still, but it turns out, no, that's not what it's about. It ultimately is about, ready, here we go, I'm going to spoil you, there's some changelings back again, and they're a little different this time. 
Um, something is going on at the upper levels of Starfleet. You know, we've heard a lot of this stuff before and now it's coming back again. So it's like, uh oh, what's going on? So initially I thought Riker was part of this because he was acting really weird. He was forgetting some things as he's talking to Picard. He's calling him captain. He was saying there's some strife between him and Deanna Troy, but maybe that was his way of going, okay, I don't want to talk about Deanna because I don't have the information. But then it turns out, no, he's he's okay. You know, everything's cool there. Um, we get introduced to a new character named Jack Crusher, who is Beverly's son and turns out to be Picard's son. He's only supposed to be about 23, 24. Apparently they hooked up right after Nemesis. She had disappeared for 20 years. Um, he, The actor himself is in his 30s, so he looks a little bit older than he should for to be 23, 24. Uh, but he's a new character, and you know Riker instantly recognizes him as P uh, Picard's son. So we get that in there. Um, they are on a, because they need to rescue Beverly and his son and her son, they're on the new Titan A, which is like a, a retrofit fit. It doesn't look like the old Titan. It looks sort of like the Const Const constitution classes. I think it's constitution. Um, you know, like the old enterprise from the movies and we get introduced to, uh, Captain Shaw, who is an asshole, but he has some real interesting things about him. Seven of, seven of nine is the first officer on this ship. And it's just, there's just so much stuff, right? It's just, it's all leading to something. Meanwhile, there's a, a side quest with Rafi and she has a handler at Starfleet because the, again, there's a conspiracy handler turns out to be Worf, of course. And he's in a new place in his life. By the episode five, everybody connects and um, their stories merge. And we're going to go from here. And then there's other things along the way, obviously. Um, again, I'm really digging it. I have no idea where it's going to go for the rest of the series. We still haven't seen Jordy. We still haven't seen Deanna, really. We haven't seen Lore. He was teased in the trailer. We haven't seen Moriarty. He was teased in the trailer. It's like, okay. And are there going to be other surprises, right? So um, here are some things that um, I want to mention per character, and then I have some other things. So Picard, Patrick Stewart, he's really getting old. There are some scenes where he's just sitting down. He can barely talk, and I feel like, I know that they filmed season one and two, I mean, two and three almost back to back, um, but you can see this is going to be his final hurrah, I have to imagine. Will he survive by the end? Remember, he is a positronic um, body, but will he survive? Will he sacrifice himself for his son? who is also going through some things. Jack is having like these visions of red tendrils and a doorway and perhaps uh, a cityscape that's getting blown up and voices telling him to come find me and connect us. I don't know if this is Changeling related, if it's the Link related. Um, part of me thinks because they keep bringing up that Picard was Locutus, you know, is there Borg DNA inside Jack? And this is part of that, you know? And is that how he will um, free himself from these visions because Picard is going to sacrifice himself, perhaps for his son? Uh, we shall see. 
Um, I talked about Riker. Uh, you know, he's having some family strife, but he seems to have made some amends by the end. Worf, as I mentioned, he's got a lot of potential. I mean, he's older, but you can do so much with him. I don't think they're going to kill him off. Uh, Deanna, we talked about. Let's see, Lore hasn't shown up. Jordy, we, we've met one of his daughters, and I think we're going to meet another one of his daughters. She's piloting the Titan A, which is cool. Um, Beverly, of course, has her son. Um, she has a worry. The, the reason why she didn't tell Picard that she got pregnant is because Picard leaves a very dangerous life. And between her, between Jack Crusher, her husband, between Wesley disappearing, she doesn't want to lose her son to the legacy of Picard, or she doesn't want his son to be threatened. So could she sacrifice herself for her, for her son by the end? Maybe I could see that, you know, but I'm hoping not. Um, and then, as I mentioned, we've seen Raffi, we've seen Seven. Um, there is very much a next next generation being formed, right? You got Picard and Jack Crusher and Beverly and Jack Crusher as well. You have Geordi with his daughters. You have Worf training Rafi, more or less. Data, you could say, is could pass on all that uh, stuff with lore. Troy and Riker have their daughter, daughter Kestra, who uh, their deceased son was really good at languages, and so is Kestra. And that makes me think, oh, you know, that's kind of like a... a a way to get her into Starfleet, maybe similar to like Uhura, um, maybe Shaw, maybe Seven, that could be a connection. There's there's definitely this feeling of a torch being passed, and who knows, we might see some other characters as well that might feed into that little speculation. The thing that Raffi and Worf are trying to follow is this break-in at Daystrom uh, Institute, there was a weapon of mass destruction that was used on a Starfleet site. It's very similar to the technology that is on the vessel known as the Shrike, which is commanded by Captain uh, Vadic, who is the big bad, played by Amanda Plummer, uh, daughter of Christopher Plummer, who was, uh, what was his name? Uh, the Klingon, was it Chang, I believe, in Undiscovered Country? Uh, the one that was spouting all the Shakespeare stuff and spinning in his chair. In fact, Amanda Plummer spun in her chair in one of the episodes, which was really cool. Um, so anyway, this weapon, this portal weapon, was stolen from Daystrom, but uh, Rafi and Worf think that something else was stolen. I'm thinking it's probably the body of B4, which I think we saw in Picard Season 1, and maybe Lore will take over the body, because there's a way to break into Daystrom Institute by use of this, like, chip. There was, like, this bad Vulcan that told Worf, you know, that I broke into the Daystrom Institute because I had this, like, there's an AI that runs the Institute, and you have to use this thing, and I'm thinking, okay, what is on that chip? Is it Lore's mind? Is it Professor Moriarty? And that's how they confuse the AI at Daystrom. And if it is Lore, maybe he'll work his way into B4's body. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Who knows what is going on with this conspiracy? Vatic looks like she's a changeling as well, or part changeling. And in episode five, one of the greatest moments, I'm so glad I wasn't spoiled by this, um, 
because Riker and Picard basically commandeered the Titan to go rescue Beverly, they're in trouble with Starfleet. So they send some uh, someone from security, and it turns out to be Ensign Rowe, once again back with Starflight, Starfleet, played by Michelle Forbes. She's it was so good to see her, and they wrap up her story with Picard. Um, you know, some of it is a little anticlimactic because she played uh, the commander of the Pegasus over in Battlestar Galactica, so she's playing a similar role. But the whole reason they used her for Battlestar Galactica is because they knew they were tugging on the heartstrings of Ensign Rowe because she gave up that character, right? So here she is back again. It was so good to see her. She's such a good actress. Um, there's a, you know, fairly definitive ending to her character here. Uh, but I, I was just so amazed. My jaw was dropped. She's the one who tells Picard that this conspiracy is bigger than he thinks. And now he has all the information, which leads them to Worf, which will, which will probably lead them to Geordi and other characters as well. There really is a lot that you can you can follow, and I know there are some people who are like, oh, you know, it's not really Star Trek, you know, they're they're going against all the blah 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 blah, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm loving it, especially because you know I've been doing a great Star Trek rewatch, so it's just awesome to have all these characters back and to have the storyline back, and you know, much kudos to the current showrunner who's giving us all this stuff. Perhaps the biggest thing that I want right now, I don't think it's a theory, but um, when you look at the design of the Shrike, on the bottom, it looks like it has a deflector shield. Although one of the designers on Twitter says, no, it is not a deflector shield, but it looks like a deflector shield. So in my mind, I'm thinking, what could be as great as the cliffhanger when Picard became Locutus, Locutus at the end of season three, and we were all like, oh my God, he's a Borg. Uh, Riker's going to fire on him. And then we were left with that cliffhanger all summer. What could marvel that cliffhanger? Well, I think what's going to happen is the Shrike was built around the remains somehow of the old Enterprise D. And like there's going to be a battle... And either it's going to get destroyed and the Enterprise D is going to like the, the the base of it, not the saucer, but the base of it's going to rise out or it's going to do like this Comet Empire thing from Star Blazers and just sort of like emerge from the Shrike ship. And, it, and there's going to be all the members of TNG standing on like the bridge of the Titan looking at the Enterprise ready, ready to destroy them. People would probably go bonkers. They'll probably be so pissed, but I want that because it looks like it. I know what the designer said, but it just looks like it's the Enterprise D just waiting to emerge. And I'm like, come on, please give us the old ship back. Like, I want to see that one last time. I think that could be cool. So there you go. My thoughts, my gushing, loving thoughts of this series uh, for this season. Anyway, I really, really do enjoy it. And I'm at the point where... Regardless of what they do for 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, I'm there. Like, if it doesn't exactly stick the landing, that's okay. Because these first five episodes are better than season one and season two combined. And I'm loving it and cannot wait to see what happens next. Wrap it up. I'll take it. Wrap it up. I'll take it. 
let's wrap up this week's digest with a, a quick little Friday segment here uh, at the end of the week. Uh, if you haven't noticed, because maybe you're not caught up, I've been releasing these digests, um, you know, uh, a number of them this week and this month. Uh, uh, I've been behind, right? You've probably been behind. I've certainly been behind releasing these digests. Um, you know, I try to release them on a Saturday or Sunday, but, you know, if you noticed when I released versus what date I'm talking about, you know, it's like weeks, right? And I, in fact, I think the last time I was like on time was probably last summer. But as of this digest, even though it's going to come out a few days after March 18th, I am now caught up, Whew. Um, which is great because I can stop hustling to get these episodes out. I can start, you know, even though I, I still try to record every day, sometimes I, I skip a bunch of days and then I have to record like three segments in a row. Um, sometimes I have to record all the segments, even though I wrote all the notes. Um, but I can finally get back to doing, hopefully, some daily recordings. Um, but I'm all caught up and I feel good about that and I want to start, hopefully, stay on top of it. Um, I released on Twitter that uh, I had a recent work gig fall through. I've been unemployed for a while. I had a work gig that uh, fell into my lap that was kind of unusual but was going to pay well. And it just sort of evaporated uh, in a kind of non-professional way. Um, and what that means is I am going to aggressively get that Patreon going because I, I want to continue podcasting and the way to do that is, uh, by getting some Patreon, Patreon help. But the other thing I'm doing is putting my collection back up again for sale. I'm going to dump some lists, my DC lists, my Marvel lists, maybe a list about all my collections like hardcovers and trades, some independents, whatever is on that list is going to be on sale cheaply. Um, single issues are usually no more than a dollar. Uh, trades are like $5 if that. Sometimes what I do is I only charge like a third of the cover price, not even half, a third. Uh, shipping is done by media mail, so it's cheap. And if it's like a, you know, if you come and say, I want a whole bunch of stuff, of course, I'm going to give you some kind of deal, right? If it like comes out to like $53 worth of books, I'm going to charge you 50, you know, plus shipping. So, um, yeah, it's the best way for me to make some really quick cash, which I need right now. Um, so between that, the Patreon, um, my hope is that I can, you know, stay afloat. Uh, for a while longer while I continue to find work, which has been uh, a little a little bit of a struggle, you know, because I'm trying to find something I really want to do as opposed to something I have to do. And my savings is, is tapping out. So, um, yeah, so I'm coming to you. You know, I am not above asking for donations, but uh, my hope is that the Patreon really will be the way to go um, because you're going to get some behind-the-scenes processing stuff, some notes, um, I'm going to treat it like an artist Patreon, and what I want to do is have like podcast commissions so that, um, you know, at a certain tier, you can get a 10-minute podcasting podcast from me that is yours personally, not a podcast that everybody pays for, your own personal podcast, right? So I think that's much more unique, and you can we can hash out the subject, and it can make it more personal, 
then there'll be a tier for like a 20 minute podcast and a tier for a, a 30 minute podcast. Um, so there's going to be a, a number of tiers, but I'm hoping this could be a, a, a way to uh, help support the show. So yeah, so I'm in a little bit of a need, but you know, my spirits are always up and I've already sold some books that are, that's helping out, which is great. So if you love paper, send me your want list. I might have what you need. Don't wait for me to release these lists. Like, tell me what you need. I might have it. And, um, barring, you know, some titles that I want to keep forever, uh, I'm really going to go in and, and try to sell as much as I can. So uh, that that could be a lot of fun. You could get some cheap, cheap, cheap comics. All right, so email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website, The Daily Rios, and The Daily Rios Instagram. Go follow my Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Uh, go uh, give me a review or a thumbs up or some stars over at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Uh, book club recommendations, yes. Promos, yes. Voice or audio uh, feedback, yes. Please send me all that stuff. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 608 for Saturday, March 18th, 2023. Talk to you soon. Forgive me. At some point, asshole became a substitute for charm. <laughs>